Holy Madness is brought to you by JewishCoffeeHouse.com. Ich verstehe nicht. You're listening to Holy Madness. Yes, you are. I'm your host, Svi. And I'm your host, Marisimcha. And we are coming at you with our fourth episode. Episode four. The winter holiday episode? Yeah, this will be our uh, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Diwali, Chinese New Year, Zoroastrian, winter solstice. Solstice. Uh... Podcast. In fact, we're even going to talk about all of those. Saturnalia. Yeah, yeah. Saturnalia. We're going to bring that one back too. So, in fact, we're going to talk about that one as well. So, just a little bit of some housekeeping and some shout outs. We actually, in the spirit of the holiday and celebrating, we just had our 100th podcast download. 100. 100. Thank you. Yeah. Where was that 100th download from today? So our 100th download was from Singapore. Singapore? Yeah. Do you know anybody in Singapore? I do not. So whoever you are in Singapore, get in touch. Yeah. Check out our Facebook, at uh, Holy Madness, top the show. Or um, hit us up on, I guess, email, because that's cool and hip and with it. Where else are we getting downloaded from? We get most of our downloads from the United States. Okay. We get 50% uh, 50 out of the 100 downloads are from the United States. Uh, 41% of our downloads come from Israel. Okay. We got two from Germany. Oh, probably people from the Humboldt Brain Center. Yeah. I would imagine so. Two from Poland. Two from Poland. Hey, Leon. Thank you for the uh, amazing feedback that you gave us. Two from Ireland. Ireland? Yeah. Cool. One from Norway. Ah, that might be my redheaded friend Svi. Or his wife, Rebecca. Hello to you both. Uh, one from the Czech Republic. Ah, that could be uh, Andre. Hello, Andre. That's our international audience. And then in the United States, we had 22 downloads from New York. Wow. Hello, New York. I don't know anybody in New York, I don't think. I know plenty, apparently. Okay. <laughs> Uh, six from Virginia. Those are all yours. Wow. Four from Ohio. Those are all mine. Hello, Yudi and Khanna. We love you. Three from Maryland. I'll assume that's my brother and sister-in-law. And then one from D.C., one from New Jersey, one from Oregon, one from Tennessee. And 11 that came in listed under other. Thank you all who've been listening. Thank you all who have been listening and been giving us feedback as well. And we hope to keep bringing the awesomeness. And so, moving along the holiday season, this is quite, actually one of my favorite times of the year. The most wonderful time. Is that like a Macy's commercial? I think that that carol was eventually turned into a commercial for something. What are you, like a millennial or something? I'm a Jew from Brooklyn. A Jew from Brooklyn who <laughs> never went caroling. No. No, he did not. But you got the cold. It's New York in the winter. Who wants to go outside? Everyone. The thing I remember most are the lights. Isn't New York the city that never sleeps? It's always lit up? Yeah, but they don't usually do the strings of lights routine. See, here oh, okay. in Jerusalem, we do. It's actually... For Sukkot. No. All the streets, all the, the street lamps have them. The city puts them up. The The street lamps on the back axis road to Armon and Atsiv are lit up with Christmas lights. Really? You'll see on Yanovsky on your way out in the middle of the winter. They're lit up all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're those ornaments on the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They use it as a way to beautify the city. So, yeah. It's the time of good cheer for most people, anyway. Um, it was no, always it's the time of darkness. Well, yeah. That's, that's kind of the, the funny thing. Because, you know, all these holidays, across the world, it seems, it's a near-universal thing. They're celebrating light. Denial. Denial. Just trying to escape the darkness. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But all, all the winter festivals, 
either either they celebrate light itself or their celebration is with light. So just as a a quick, you know, know, some kind of Pharisaic, what are you saying, man? Wait, what? <laughs> you making some kind of Pharisaic distinction there? No, I'm, I'm. For example, look, Christmas is not a light holiday, but it's celebrated by lighting things up. It's part of how you would celebrate the holiday. It, it, you would feel as if you didn't do it right if you didn't put the lights up. But it's not that you're sitting there saying we celebrate light. You're celebrating the birth of Jesus. I assume I've never done it. It's a, it's a you know you're right. It is a pretty Talmudic distinction, but it I think it holds water. So I mean, look, you've got you've got Christmas. That's the that's the obvious one. You've got Diwali. You've what is got, Diwali? Um, you know something? I actually had to look it up. It is the Hindu festival of lights Mm. it's uh it's celebrated in the autumn so i guess it's a little bit before where where we're at does Um, it also have like thanksgiving themes to it yeah you know most most of these holidays we're listing and we'll continue to list do i'm asking because the fall holidays tend to be harvest thanksgiving holidays whereas the light holidays around the solstice seem to me to be not turning on the axis of thanks but rather on the dichotomy between light and dark well there's one that does both for sure it's the chinese new year which Ah. is celebrated as a solstice but incorporates uh both fireworks which are actually used both for sound and light um and lanterns and the lanterns are actually an influence uh, a buddhist influence and they're kind of a reference to the light of understanding. Light oh, really? Of, yeah. And, you know, the way you and I would say, I see the light. I got it. Eureka. That's funny. I don't remember meeting that image in, like, any of the koans that I read or... Well, I guess there's enlightenment. But yeah. Yeah. Maybe that would be a better I, I English word. Yeah. I don't but... know if that's, if that's an accurate term in the original language. I have, I no, have clue. no idea. I have no clue. My only exposure to buddhist thought is actually this book of letters between a buddhist and a rabbi which is not very good at all anyway so satyori is a a buddhist term in japanese for enlightenment that's how we translate it but i i don't see light i guess i'd have to look at the characters to i have no idea but i do know that they carry these red lanterns and the whole idea of using lanterns as part of celebration is uh some kind of buddhist uh, uh influence uh, there's also our holiday, uh, Hanukkah. Or Hanukkah for you chet-impaired people. Terrible impairment to have. Yeah. You know, when we used to buy challah yeah. for Shabbat in the local supermarket, and my father would go to the bakery in the supermarket and he would ask for challah, they, of course, had no clue what he was talking about. Right. And then he would just, you know, that braided bread often with the sesame seeds on top of it oh you want that chala bread because <laughs> that means see that's a funny thing you could tell when people came across these words by by print or by talking in the first time because if they hear it for the first time they'll say hala and if they read it they'll say chala yet never make fun of somebody for mispronouncing a word according to how it's written because it means they read it's true that's a story of my life there so these are these are uh, these different holidays, um, and and universally, as we mentioned, it's an odd thing. Universally, this this interplay, this almost universal metaphor of light and darkness, is present within just about all of them. As you pointed out, rather sarcastically, there's almost like this denial as if it's not dark, or this artificial. If there is no light, we'll put our own light and. It has a it has a funny feel, but it's interesting. You gotta admit, it's interesting that across the whole world, everybody's doing something similar. In connection with that, it fascinates me that Hanukkah has to occur before the solstice. It does. Yes, the beginning, the onset of Hanukkah has to be prior to the solstice. It always is. Why is that? Because the light isn't a reflection of the okay now the seasons are turning around there's an anticipation of it hanukkah is the the chinuch the initiation 
of Gula of Redemption. Ah, that's interesting. I never thought of that before. Yeah. I have a, a sense that the Christmas New Year complex is actually drawing on the light from Rosh Hashanah. Oh, absolutely. It's a New Year thing. And and we have it in the reverse. Hanukkah is linked, at least in the world of the Hasidim. In the ascetic philosophy, Hanukkah is the end of the, the period of the new year of judgment, of apportioning. Um, so there's an interplay between these themes of light and dark and, and the themes of a new year in which you're and the Chinese New Year is it is their new year. I would say it because of the, the Midrash about Adam, Adam. He's exiled, the world plunges into darkness. Adam and Eve come into being on Rosh Hashanah. Uh, so once they're exiled, the the days become shorter, and they think that the whole we think the whole world is dying. Everything is dying. With them. Yeah, and then when solstice comes, it all turns around, and they know that. So the, they well, it says. So it, this is really like the most primal. Well, holiday. sure. The truth is, the 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 Talmud goes as far as to identify Saturnalia that we'd mentioned with its its sources being in this story of of Adam saying realizing that it's the way of the world to wax and wane and to have periods of dormancy and, and vibrancy and this celebration that he has of of this returning of the light so it's it's universal both mythologically to us and as we see it's universal and it's and it's almost you know complete well let's say widespread it's also universal and it's widespread um, celebration in such a way where it almost is a universal metaphor, if you will. I think here's a great place to pause a couple seconds, take a bit of a break, let so, this stand on its own, and when we come back, I think it'll be a great idea to get in. Now that we've shown how you have similarities, mm -hmm. universal metaphor, I think it'd be great if we can look a little bit deeper and see where the differences are not where the differences are obviously you can just point to how you know the, the different holidays but i think the the way to word the question is are is all light the same do i get to talk about cognitive metaphors at some point awesome man yeah so we will play you some of our awesome 10 second jams and we'll be back after these short commercial messages You can't go home, man. This pageant's your chance to spread some Christmas spirit. And that's contagious like VD. I just... I don't think I have it anymore, Leo. Well, don't be fooled, man. VD comes back. Starting with cognitive metaphor. So, it's through metaphor that we bootstrap up from simple physical experiences to ways of talking about elusive things like time and abstract things like numbers, mathematics. So, metaphor is not a figure of speech, but a mode of thought. That's a quote. This is how... Adama, humus, dirt, develops abstract concepts as it evolves into Adam, homo, human, consciousness. Okay. The seminal book on this subject, this amazing book, is by Lakoff and Johnson, and it's called Metaphors We Live By. It's called that because, they argue, metaphors mapping from basic bodily experiences structure our understanding of everything oh that's beautiful for for the non-hebrew speakers that's a quote from psalms it means uh from my flesh i understand the lord 
I, I see the Lord. Wow. So in the case of light, one of the main usages of light is in a metaphoric mapping to mind. Okay. Okay. So uh, understanding is seeing. When you understand something, you say, oh, I see that. I see that, yeah. Right. Ideas are things which are seen. Right. right. Communication is showing. Yeah. Right. And we say things like, see what I mean? And I have a point of view. Right. Uh, shed light on the subject. Uh, that idea is clear. She's brilliant. Or just talking about perspectives. Right, exactly. Vantage points. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, but the, the bodily experience of light and darkness can act as the means for conceptualizing other domains as well. Okay. Okay. So, for example, uh, light and dark could be used for things which are distinct versus indistinct. Right. Uh, well, we say black and white about that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Distinct versus indistinct, murky, unformed. Yeah, black, white. Um, it's also used for uh, life versus death. Okay. And you can see how those things are really grounded in physical experiences of light and darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's obvious, in a way, how metaphor can grow out of reality. It's not just something that's imposed by otherworldly, ethereal poets on reality. Right. Okay. So moving further from the embodied experience, at least as I see it, maybe you could tell me otherwise, the light-dark opposition is also used for conceiving good and evil. Absolutely. Well, listen, in Star Wars, it's literally the light side and the dark side. They, they definitely <laughs> thought about this, right? Okay. Actually, is, is that why we get down on ignorance? Like, if darkness is lack of knowledge and it's also evil, does that mean that lack of knowledge is evil? Or evil is a lack of knowledge? But if you want to continue that, is evil enjoyable? Because ignorance is bliss. which explains why many people go the other way and say enjoyable is evil (laughs) gosh the associative love did a metaphor in the what is that uh the reflexive love ignorance and bliss guys this is why you should not become a philosophy major no don't become a philosophy major well, that and it's not fun flipping burgers. I never flip burgers. Wait, you were a philosophy major? Yeah. I did not know that. I yeah. didn't mean to make fun of you. I did philosophy and music. That's different. So I could be unemployed in two different ways? Yeah. <laughs> but, but one maybe cancels the other one out. I don't know. No. <laughs> two wrongs <laughs> don't make a right. <laughs> so do we have time to read a song? Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, psalm 88 is it's just it's a stunning psalm it you know i don't like to say that about any part of scripture it's like oh this is part is really good but for whatever my subjective experience is worth like psalm 88 is just amazing okay and in it king david combines oppositions of dark and light low and high and also death and life Mm-hmm. and even indistinctness and solidity in order to describe his need to move from a state of ra'ot, troubles, to Yeshua, deliverance. Salvation. Okay, yeah. What's the difference? There is none. It's just a, another way of translating the word. Okay, Vesetter. It's also a cute pun, because Yeshua, salvation... Jesus, man. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, but don't read that into this song. I'm not. It was how you said it. Okay. So I, I'm just going to do this in English because if you can do it in Hebrew, you will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hashem, God of my deliverance, when I cry out in the night before you, night, let my prayer reach you, incline your ear to my cry. He's lost in the night, but he can still use sound and cry out. Mm-hmm. For I am sated with misfortune, Ra'ot. I am at the brink of Sha'ol. Sha'ol is the hell of Psalms. It's a low place. I am numbered with those who go down to the pit. I am a helpless man, abandoned among the dead, like bodies lying in the grave, of whom you are mindful no more, and who are cut off from your care. 
You have put me at the bottom of the pit, in the darkest places, in the depths. Your fury lies heavy upon me. You afflict me with all your breakers. You make my companions shun me. You make me abhorrent to them. I am shut in and do not go out. My eyes pine away from affliction. I call you, Hashem, each day. I stretch out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the shades, shades rise to praise you? Is your faithful care recounted in the grave, your constancy in the place of perdition? Are your wonders made known in the netherworld, your beneficent deeds in the land of oblivion? As for me, I cry out to you, Hashem. Each morning my prayer greets you. Why, Hashem, do you reject me? Do you hide your face from me? Hide your face from me. From my youth I have been afflicted and near death. I suffer your terrors wherever I turn. Your fury overwhelms me. Your terrors destroy me. They swirl about me like water all day long. They encircle me on every side. You have put friend and neighbor far from me and my companions out of my sight. Isn't that stunning? Yeah. It's actually even more uh, stunning for, for those of you who do speak Hebrew because the word that it uses for out of my sight is actually darkness. Machshoch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the Hebrew takes all of this to a totally different level, but just to put it out there quickly for you. Sure. And obviously we're, we're both ignoring the elephant in the room. I Parenthetically. I don't see an elephant in this room. Parenthetically, I took uh, great offense at Mary Simcha's uh, continued use of the phrase elephant in the parlor as if we are high-class British people. So I am laying down elephant in the room. But I will now use elephant in the salon <laughs> because we're Israeli. <laughs> That's even worse. <laughs> of course, we're ignoring the elephant in the room, and that is the beginning of the Bible itself frames all of creation in terms of light and darkness. Right. This is this is really cool. So we do have instances of using light as a metaphor, um, but we also have highly poetic usages of light, very evocative usages. But it's it's not metaphoric. It's just light in the deepest, most primal sense. And that's really what these metaphors are drawing on, the yeah. most basic elements of creation, vayhi or. Right, which is, which is the, the first utterance of creation itself. Let there be light. Some other amazing instances where we see light in that primal form, ote or kasalma note shamaim kairia, wrapped in a robe of light, you, God, spread the heavens like a tent cloth. Right. Also, or Zerua la Tzadik, Lev Simcha. That one's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's so beautiful. We actually say that uh, every week at the uh, entrance of Shabbat, beginning of the Sabbath. And it's always held a very powerful meaning to me. The words literally mean that light is sown, is planted for the righteous man. And to those who are straight of heart, happiness. So we wanted to talk about how the light that we see in this season means different things. Well, I think it means different things to different peoples. Not just to different people, but in the in the way... It's winter, we lack light, and we're all responding to the bodily experience of light and darkness and mapping it onto different ideas. Absolutely. But yet, there are subtle differences in all these light festivals which speak to slightly different, but significant differences. And and I think if we go through them, we can actually come out with some really interesting insights that I think a lot of people would appreciate. I, I think the best place to do that, just in terms of who our audience is, and we, we're not going to try to pretend we know anything about the Chinese New Year or Zoroastrian winter solstice. Although that one is interesting because it's not light that they celebrate as much as heat. Heat or fire? 
Well, you don't see the fire. The fire is put under a table and it warms your feet. Ah, that's interesting. So it's heat. I guess the thing that strikes me about uh, Zoroastrians and fire is the emphasis on cleanliness and purity and how fire has a purifying effect. For example, metallurgy. Yeah. But we aren't going to talk about Zoroastrian so much. Exactly. Since I have had exactly one, no, two conversations with live Zoroastrians. And I've had zero. But we can talk about Christmas and Hanukkah. Uh, you and I both grew up in a Christian country. What the heck do you know about Christmas anyway? Not not much. I mean, there are trees, right? Am I off to a good start? Uh, there are trees. I yeah. don't know if that gets you into the substance of Christmas. Though. Well, there's... Wait, I'm not done yet. Okay. There's a star on top. <laughs> do they have to have stars on top? I'm pretty sure that if there isn't a star on top of the tree, you didn't get credit for doing Christmas. I bet you don't even know about the three wise men. Sure I do. One brought gold, one brought perfume, and one brought drugs. <laughs> what? Myrrh's perfume and frankincense. I mean, we all know what you do with frankincense. So, dipping into the frankincense, I see. <laughs> well, no more of that, okay? You don't know anything about Christmas. What do you mean? It's not Christmas without polar bears and Coca-Cola. What are Christians celebrating on Christmas? Oh, well, you didn't say that. Okay, it's Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth, which occurred nowhere near December. How do we know that? What do you mean? It, the sheep were living outside. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it says that the shepherds were living out of doors and keeping watches in the night over their flocks. Now, that only happened from around the time of Passover until it gets cold and the rain starts, which is after Sukkot, uh, mid-November, uh, mid-October, end of October. So if he was born while the shepherds were outside, that gives you a window of April to October, which is definitely not December 25th. Wow. Yeah, take that. I don't know anything. You totally Googled that in preparation. You watched me Google it right now. <laughs> <laughs> point is, point is, obviously you're right. We're not coming to this conversation as practicing Christians, and we're not coming to this conversation as uh, um, from a first-person experience, at least on, on one of the two things that we're going to compare. But we did grow up in, in a Christian country. And we do have a certain working knowledge. Just you grew up in a Jewish enclave in a Christian country. I grew up in Brooklyn. That's a hipster enclave with a small Jewish population. Now? Even so. I remember growing up the incongruity hmm. of this time of year for me. Because everything, everything is lit up. Everything is lit up with christmas lights yeah and and just you know the colors it's not even just christmas lights they have the tinsel and they have the what's the word i'm looking for it's like that fake fur stuff you know what i mean fake fur yeah i don't think that's christmas no it is it's 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 um are you thinking of santa claus's beard <laughs> no I'm tired. It's it's come on. It, it looks like astroturf, but they they put it in like thin strips, and and they use it as a. Oh, this must be some that. weird New York thing. No, it's not. You have the the Macy's window, and actually became a whole thing. The unveiling of the Macy's window. I actually went one year. Really? Yeah, I went one year to see. The Macy's the window. revelation of the Macy's window. <laughs> With the fake snow and everything. I mean, it's not like I went, you know, for the official unveiling of it, but, but I did go just to, to look at it. And, okay, the truth is I really went to go to karaoke bar, but I also went to look at the Macy's window. But just, you know, there's, there's lights everywhere. And then I would go home, and we'd light this little candle or a few candles in the window. And then you'd look outside, mm -hmm. right, and you'd see the neighbor across the street, and his house is all done up, with like a Santa on on his sleigh with the reindeer up on his roof, and you've got, you know, the, the house is tricked out everywhere. 
all lit up and in the windows and you've got the decorations and, and you can see his tree through his window and then you you know you look down and and there's your candle so instead of feeling like you're having a festival of light you're like okay we're the dark patch in the neighborhood <laughs> <laughs> well my neighborhood was mostly religious jews it was actually one house on the block that was lit up for christmas but just it was amazingly incongruent to just see the difference i, I didn't at the time look at Hanukkah as a as a festival of light. We used to laugh at the Adam Sandler song. Hanukkah is the festival of light. Because it wasn't. It was it was the celebration of the Maccabees and driving out the Greeks and it had all sorts of different things and it, and it, and it took it took a long time until I approached it as having anything to do with light itself. At the time, it was really just a matter of the you know kind of like christmas you're not celebrating light you're celebrating something and the way to celebrate it involves these little lights and the truth is it wasn't even light it was a, a, it was a candelabra because when the maccabees retook the temple they were able to reuse the menorah which has long been a symbol of our people so, and then there was this miracle with that candelabra, and the lights lasted for eight crazy nights. So that's what we were doing. But it wasn't a festival of light. It was a festival of, well, all that. So it took till later in my life till I was able to kind of see it as a festival of lights at all. But there certainly was this wild contrast. Where I grew up, we really were the dark patch in the neighborhood <laughs> and it was years before we even put a Hanukkah in the window so that there would be something. any identifying sign of we're involved with something here and driving around in the evenings you know we would comment on the different houses oh that one's very pretty and we had a word for many of the homes which we saw and I'm hardly one to lecture you on Yiddish, but the word was ungapach. <laughs> Slapped up. <laughs> yeah, it's like a woman wearing way too much makeup. That, that's how you would say it in, in, in English, too. She's just slapped up with makeup, that one. Or at least in Brooklyn, anyway, which the truth is, is probably just the translation of ungapach <laughs> that made it into yeah. English. Oh, that's funny. I never thought about what the Yiddish literally means. Well, I mean, you probably have a bunch of uh, your your experience. Of Christmas is definitely different than mine. In New York, you don't really have carolers going through the residential neighborhoods. It kind of look. It was nothing like the Christmas you would see on television. Our neighborhood had a Christmas cookie party. Okay, so that we had nothing of. To which we would bring like dreidel cookies. <laughs> what better way to tell everyone that you're the odd man out? Uh, I was a member of the high school choir. Okay. And one very important source of income for our choir, for all sorts of other things that we did, was our caroling. Really? Yeah, we caroled in, in malls, in front of department stores, and then uh, we would have a Christmas party every year, and we would go through the neighborhood of whoever was hosting the Christmas party. What was your favorite carol? I didn't like carols. Really? No, there were some that were pretty, but I, I didn't like that music. I was asking because I'm highly curious if I'd even recognize one. You know, one time we were recording for Radio Free Asia. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to stop you right there. You were doing what? One time, uh, Chamber Group from my high school, we were recording for Radio Free Asia. And I think we were doing a program of Christmas carols. And it went very well. We had a good amount of studio time left over. And so we improvised an arrangement of... I think Silent Night. Oh, and, I recognize that one. And it came out really beautifully. It was that was stupendous. It was an amazing experience. I like that one. That. I like Silent Night. I only know the first line of it, but it's it's kind of haunting. Yeah, there's a there are a lot of haunting melodies in the Christmas repertoire, which is like kind of odd considering it's this Carol of the Bells. I don't find that one so haunting. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, I know which one it is, but I don't find it haunting. Oh, the repetitious, the obsessive. But then again, I know that tune because of Family Guy. 
Don't touch the fries in hard fat. It really hurts bad, and so do skin grafts. Would you like an apple pie with that? Would you like an apple pie with that? Wait for the bell. Can't hear the bell. Where is the bell? Wait for the bell. Ding, fries are done. Ding, fries are done. God help us. That's 18 seconds of your life you're never going to get back. Thanks. Um, but anyway, that, that incongruency between Hanukkah and Christmas, I think, really drives at one major difference, which, going back to what we were talking before about constructing metaphors, makes a very, very significant difference in a worldview. You mean that the light of Christmas is essentially the salvation of Jesus, whereas the light of Hanukkah is the Oreganus, the primal light of creation. That's definitely part of it, but I think it goes a bit further because the light that people are sharing on Christmas is a it's an impersonal light. It's just out there. It becomes a vehicle of self-expression because everybody does it differently and it's artistic. But the light of Hanukkah is very personal because it's not about the light. In fact, we have the rule that you're not allowed to use the light. You can't use it to see something, for that, example. That makes it impersonal. It's not, don't take this light personally. You can't make personal use of it. You can't use it. But what it is, is it's a expression of your light. What I mean by that or a great way to explain is is there's light and there's what it lets you see. Okay. So when we talk about things like I see the light in terms of understanding, right? It's not mm -hmm. that you, you know something. It's that you understand something. There's something personal about that. We'd call it insight as opposed to just sight. Okay. So the, the idea behind Hanukkah is the personal aspect of that light. The things that your life has allowed you to understand in your experiences or through your experiences. And in doing so, it's you. Okay, I'm going to try to summarize. My sense is that you're telling me that you have two very different experiences. One of the Christmas happening around you and the other of your Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is this experience of your light, and that kind of experience is accessible to anybody involved in Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah allows. And then, on the other hand, you're saying that the light of Christmas is experientially an impersonal light. It's all around. What does it mean for it to be impersonal? It's just... It's out there. It's a, a fact of reality. And this sounds like exactly what you would get for anybody who's comparing what he grew up with and what he's involved with to what other people are doing. This isn't a, a real comparison of the experience of Christmas and the experience of Hanukkah. This is a comparison of an insider experience and experiencing the other. Well, as you pointed out a half hour ago, Christmas is not... An a holiday of light it's a holiday that's celebrated with lights and i'd also say that hanukkah isn't a festival of light in whatever sense adam sandler means it it's involved with light engaged with light in the sense of oregano's the the primal light of creation the light the electromagnetic spectrum and energy that condenses into everything that we experience. I'm not suggesting just that there's a difference experientially. That's true. Look, if you want to get nitty-gritty, Hanukkah is a holiday that was established by a new monarchy to cement its rule by celebrating how it came about. Good. So start with that. Hanukkah is about, it starts with a military uprising of a small band of rebels against a mighty empire, and it's about the assertion of self-determination, and nobody's really sure if this is a good idea, 
but in the end it gets the stamp of approval from heaven in the miracle of the menorah in the temple and that's a radically different thing from this power from above was born into the world there's a kind of i don't want to say submissive aspect to it but it's christmas is by contrast a very passive thing a hundred percent well what i was trying to zoom in on is that the celebration of Hanukkah, I mean, you were saying a second ago, it's this celebration of self-determination. I would have stopped before the world determination. What these people were celebrating was they basically said, this is who we are and we're not willing to compromise. To make a point that will probably enrage a bunch of people, which is exactly why I'm going to do it, we hold these truths to be self-evident and we're willing to fight for them. Hmm. This is me. This is what I care for. This is what's important to me. This is what I'm willing to die for. This is me. And then they happen to win. I don't think they expected to win, but they happen to win. No, they're, they aren't <laughs> fighting because they they think they're going to win. They're fighting because they have to fight because it's, this is who we are. Right. So when I'm talking about Hanukkah's personal and, and the light of insight, the idea of light not just being something you see, but something you see with. That's what I'm driving at. This idea of self-definition, self-affirmation. I hate these words because they're terrible for what I'm trying to say. Did you say your affirmations today? I did not. Wait, what are those? I think it's when you stand in front of the mirror and you tell yourself you're a good person. Oh, I don't even stand in front of a mirror. Or no, no, no. You say that wealth is coming to you. I can assure you wealth is not coming to me. It's because you didn't do your affirmations. Is that why? It is. Okay. So. And it's not enough to just do it once or twice because you spend all day telling yourself. Oh, man, I was about to put this the scientific to test. I was going to announce here for everyone to hear wealth is coming to me and we're going to see how well that does not work. Well, you're going to have to do it for like 12 hours. But anyway, that, that, that's what I'm driving at. I'm, I'm not here to, you know, throw shade at anybody else. And in a sense, you're very correct. I, I think that I appreciate that aspect of defining myself because I had the space to do so, even in the United States, because I lived in this homogenous society or homogenous location of, you know, in terms of the society there. I agree with all that. I'm just suggesting by way of how I did experience it, because I did, that, again, incorporating what you're saying, that Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth and the salvation that it brings. But mm -hmm. I think that the key word in that sentence is brings. It's coming you from sit the there, Right. You're sitting there, and in comes awesomeness. Mm -hmm. Whereas Hanukkah is built on the idea that nothing is coming to you. But if you take a stand, if you make a stand, and you're going to live by whatever that definition is, this is me, then things will happen. Then good things will come. Then, as the words in our prayers are, that that God will act. Then the universe becomes you. worth it. Right. If it's worth it to you, it could be worth it to God. Yeah. That's what I'm suggesting, that the, the difference is... We can highlight the passive or active aspect of it, but I think it's it's metaphorically within how the light is used. We light our lights. The prepositional logic is different. Exactly. Okay. Okay. You didn't want to do a comparative religions podcast, and it would be a mistake for us to try that now. But what we have now is a nice, perhaps experiential, but basically cold, almost academic comparison between Christmas and Hanukkah, and you could write a master's thesis about this. Okay. I gotta tell you, I hate Christmas. I love Christmas. I know. I despise Christmas. And the reason why I despise Christmas is because this was the epicenter of identity conflict for me as a child. So you, growing up and from Brooklyn, celebrating Hanukkah, having some sense of what Hanukkah is about, and being firmly rooted in that, and not just rooted in it, but enmeshed in it. That was your whole context, the weave of your life. Yeah, it's just the way it was. Right. That's your primary reality. And then you're surrounded by this other stuff, which is pretty, and you can enjoy it. It's just the scenery, though. Right. Whereas for me, I knew that I was growing up in exile because Jews were from New York. <laughs> <laughs> the <And> promised land. 
was on Long Island. (laughs) Indeed. My main experience of Hanukkah was in contrast to Christmas. There wasn't a Hanukkah independent of Christmas for me. Ah, I never had that. Right. So Hanukkah was Le'umat Christmas. It was in contrast. It was in parallel to. It had to be contrasted with it. I had to be able to say, how is Hanukkah different from Christmas? Why the hell would anybody think they have anything in common? Because they fall out at the same time of year? What does that matter? Because they put up Christmas lights and we light them in order. So what? It's so funny because for me it was the opposite. I'd see the Christmas lights and be like, oh, it's Kislev. (laughs) (laughs) Kanga must be coming. uh, You're right. They had nothing to do with each other. It was just a happy calendar accident. Right. Because of darkness. That's that it's as I was saying before, it took yes. me a long time to figure out they were related at all, but mm-hmm. I you're right. To me, they had nothing to do with each other. Right. So the the big experience here that what Hanukkah meant for me is that I'm Jewish, I'm different, and I need to define what that difference is, and it wasn't so clear how to do that. So what did you do? I convinced myself that I had the answers and the answers were whatever I wanted them to be and eventually I burned out on that and got tired of myself and after about two years of taking a vacation from being Jewish I stumbled into an environment that was totally different from anything I had seen before and it changed my trajectory this space changed so I could change you can't change from within your assumptions you can run up against their limits but there's no solution there. You're you're just spinning your wheels. You're spinning your wheels. You're convinced that you're right, or you feel utterly lost. But until you find your way into a different space, until a new dimension opens up for you, forget about it. And the new environment that I stumbled into was a synagogue, a reform synagogue, a strange place in that the people there were really singing. They were really davening. They were really invested in what they were doing. They truly cared. And there was a bar mitzvah. And where I grew up, the people who would show up for a bar mitzvah on a Shabbos morning were friends and family of the bar mitzvah, not members of the congregation. They didn't care. Shabbos morning was not their show. That's not what they were going to attend. But this was a place where everybody knew the bar mitzvah, but they knew him because they were really a community. And for me, I had never seen anything like that before. I said, I need to be in this place. I didn't know what I was going to do there. So I actually went to somebody and said, what can I do here? I want to be involved somehow. I just knew I needed to be there. Amazing. The last two years of college for me were split between transitioning from music into philosophy, but really transitioning into Torah and mitzvah. That shift of perspective, I'd suggest, I'm not sure I'm qualified to say it factually, but I think it's true, is one where the locus and focus... And hocus pocus. (laughs) ...of life is of yourself to of yourself within the world. I don't know if I've said this yet in our podcast. I think I did. I find the question, who am I, to be utterly useless. We definitely talked about this. I don't know if it made it into the final cut. It's utterly useless because you're asked to define yourself in terms of something that's like, I'm a writer, or I'm a good boy, whatever it is. These are ridiculous definitions for self because they're transient, because they don't connect your potential to your expression in the world. It's just a persona. Whereas if you ask, where am I? That's that's a deep question. That's a yeah. helpful question. How do I see myself in relation to my environment? What is it that I'm emerging from? I think this is a fantastic place to explore where it is that we as Jews see ourselves standing existentially but first let's take a quick break for another little uh holiday jingle (laughs) 
So did you get it? Did you get it? Haha. Holiday jingle. It was holiday. <laughs> We're hilarious. Okay. <laughs> here, here, here is the thing. What we've been dancing around. We've touched on it. We've pointed it out. We've never really jumped into the depth of such a thing. But there's a very big difference between we were describing before the passivity of celebrating something which came to the world versus the activity of celebrating something that we created in the world. And that is man's role in the world. I might be sticking a spear in the side of Christmas here, but we're talking about the difference in the integrity of the world. Is the world a place that can come to self-expression or is the world a place that needs interjection from the outside in order for it to be fulfilled? I think put it a simpler way, we would say, is the world a place where man plays a part or is the world a place where man occupies the center stage? No, that didn't help me. I'll explain. Okay. If salvation comes from the outside, then any individual person, at best, plays a tangential role in the development of a world whose goal is salvation. No, but hold on. Salvation does come from the outside for us, too. That's why David can, David can shout out in prayer, you know, save me, God. And he save does. me, not save the world. Ah, Besetter. Okay. But I, is that a difference? Of course. He's speaking personally. Save me. So? He's not talking about, I need you to save the world. The world doesn't need saving. I do. I'm in danger. The world will go on whether I live or don't live. He's speaking about himself. I have something, which is, I am something, which is valuable. And that requires your help. He's not confusing that with creation as a whole. Mm-hmm. What, what I'm driving at is this. Wait, the creation has all fallen. Creation can't develop, can't become integrated, lacks integrity. Creation doesn't stand on its own. Well, obviously creation doesn't stand on its own two feet. That's where we're going. We aren't there yet. When When David says, save me, it's... A personal prayer. I need saving. Not the world needs saving. I got it, but what, what does that, so the, how does the, that help? The point is this. If you think that it's the world that needs saving, then the most you're going to do is play some very small bit role in the world's being saved. Mm-hmm. Because the world is not a given, so you are definitely not a given. But if you look at the universe as a given of its own, then your place in it is not defined by some other goal, by some overarching goal, but it's about you. Look, there's this fantastic midrash, right, that that is very central to Hanukkah, talks about Hanukkah, where there's this verse, there's this pasuk in, in Eov, Job, 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 not sure. Where where the verse says, get a Job, get a Job, right? Tikrova nochiencha, call out and I will answer you. decha tichsof, to the works of your hands, desire, desire the works of your hands. And and, and the midrash comments that this is the the Jewish people saying to God. You light the whole world, and then you tell us to light this little menorah, to light some little candelabra. What's the point? Let us see light in your light, says the Holy One in response. The little lights of your menorah are more precious to me than the lights of all the stars I've put in the sky. Such a worldview is a worldview of the universe as a given it's such a given that it's just generic there's nothing 
you know, people look at, at, at the, the stars in the night sky. You go out to a place where there's no light pollution, and you see the grandeur of the Milky Way. Yeah. And you say, wow. But from such a perspective, there's no wow. That just is. That's there whether you are there or not. There's a wow in it, a true wow, when you see how that's a part of your story. It takes a universe, it takes a Milky Way to produce a human. Right. People who see that look at it and say, wow, because like that's beautiful and that's special and I'm just little old me. And the point of the Midrash is you've got it exactly backwards. But whatever you can do in the world, that's what's important. That's what's a difference maker. Isn't the point consciousness that the stars are, okay, big, beautiful nuclear furnaces, but so what? No, that's exactly what I'm saying. So what? But your ability... To increase the light in the world in terms of your understanding, in terms of your consciousness, in terms of the beauty and the just existence that you can shine upon. Actually, it's even more than that, because if we look in the Rambam and we look at the Rambam's Maimonides' cosmology, he sees the heavenly bodies, the stars, sun, moon. He sees all of these as as angels, and as conscious beings, and as beings with vastly greater consciousness than we have. And yet, still, there's a unique value to human life. What is it? It's not just that human life is capable of consciousness, because it will never reach that level of consciousness, according to him, in that cosmology. It's the emergence of consciousness. It's the development of consciousness from dirt. That seems to be the, the opportunity. Well, thing. also that man... What, what, what's a greater declaration of the glory of Masé Bereshi, the work of creation, the creator? Well, I, I think it's more than that. Even if you say these things have a consciousness, it doesn't change. They may have a greater understanding of God. They're closer to God, if you will, than man. But they just are what they are. They can't develop. They can't become. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So what, what, what the lights of Hanukkah are, are lights that are uniquely valuable to a god. Because they're lights that grow into their own. That become their own. That only came to being on their own. They're not generic. They're immensely self-created and therefore beautiful okay but why aren't they generic because you know give monkeys enough time and the right environment and they'll develop technology and part of their technology will be fire and they'll light fires too they'll light fires but it has nothing to do with meaning hell you you have insects that have incorporated light into their bodies yeah but it's not the light itself it's the insight. Look, we touched on this before. You can't use the light of a menorah for another purpose. The light we're discussing, it would be a travesty to use it to read a newspaper. Because it's not sight. It's insight. The insect that put light in its body doesn't have any greater insight into the nature of the universe than a rock. I'll assume I've never spoken to one. At least I've never gotten an answer from any of them. The universe we're describing is one where man is not a bit player. Where your little insights are worth the entirety of creation. That you can look. Look, you can take a guy who is an alcoholic. And he self-medicated with alcohol for 20 years. And the little insight that he learned into his just his own life, forget the universe as a whole, that he doesn't, you know, to, to quote Craig Ferguson, because I, I, it's such a powerful point, I don't have a drinking problem. I have a thinking problem. Hmm. Where he can see himself in a totally different light, pun intended. 
that's worth the entirety of creation. It never needed to be saved. It was always just waiting for that understanding. Every single person in such a worldview, every single person has a unique grasp, a unique cutting vision that without it, the universe is lacking. And with it, all of creation was worth it for that alone. Look, this is easier said than done. It requires a lifetime of pain to reach those moments of insight. And you're never sure if you got there until you're dead. But at the very least, you're not a bit player. Your purpose in the world is not to reaffirm something else. It's to grow into yourself. Whatever the hell that means. Exactly. That's exactly whatever the hell that means. And even I don't know. And I'm not going to know until I'm dead. But it gives you... Your life itself is meaningful. Not because of what it gives testimony to. But because of what it is itself. I mean, you don't mean the facts of cellular metabolism. No. Of course not. So what do you mean your life is valuable in itself? I mean that every person who graces this planet, by virtue of having been here, added something to the story of creation, shed light on something that was part of the human condition that wouldn't have been illuminated without them having done it and lived it. And so, look, is every moment this beautiful, orgasmic moment full of meaning? No. Do we know what the hell we're doing while we're doing it? Usually not. But is that confusion itself something meaningful because it's about the life that's being lived as opposed to the thing that this life is giving testimony to, which has nothing really to do with such a life? Yeah, that makes all the difference in the world. Meaningful in the grand sense, but not necessarily valuable on the level of the individual. Your life is meaningful because of your participation in the unfolding of creation, but is it valuable? It might have been meaningful in that grand sense as being an exemplar of what not to do. You, as an individual, Maybe waste. Yeah. You're right. I don't think there are any guarantees. I don't think there's really anything in the world where you can point at and go, you know, this is what you should do and it's valuable in and of itself. You're right. At, at the end of the day, we're left with a hope that we make it, and no guarantee that we do. It's horrible, <laughs> but it's the truth. You can do your best and hope and pray. Well, in a way, it'd be horrible if this weren't the case. Then there would be no stakes. A hundred percent. It's horrible without it. And it can end up horribly with it, too. And and the most we can do is hope and pray that we make it. And do our damnedest to make it, because it's in our hands as much as it isn't. So, friends, we bid you happy Hanukkah. Or Christmas. Kwanzaa. Chinese New Year. Diwali. Zoroastrian winter solstice. The non-sectarian solstice. I really thought you were going to go with Festivus for the rest of us, man. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, before we say goodbye. We got lots of great feedback after episode three of the podcast. We are very grateful to everybody who gave us feedback. 
um, from many different directions, from Leon, from Mikal in Poland, from Tzvi, who I know from Israel, but is from America and is now in Oslo, from Sean. Wow, we got so much feedback. Yeah. Adam kicked in a bit. There are a bunch of you that uh, reached out, gave us your thoughts and uh, critique. We are very grateful for that. And hopefully we have addressed some of it here. And keep it coming. We love hearing from y'all. This is uh, kind of a collaborative effort. And hopefully we keep reaching uh, new and better heights in what we do. A happy holiday to you and yours. And may this be a time full of light for all of us. Amen.